0: Hello and welcome to Ocean Calls, the Euronews podcast for friends of the sea. I'm your host, Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes.
1: He always thought of the sea as la mar, which is what people call her in Spanish when they love her. I am a part of everything that is and everything that is of the sea. The
2: sea is the same as it has been since before men ever went on it in boats. I knew that that great water, which brought so many to our shores and sent so many back, was my true home.
0: From Homer to Ernest Hemingway and Iris Murdoch, the sea is a constant source of inspiration and for many many communities around Europe the sea is a place of work a source of food on which profits can be made on which communities and traditions have been built over generations my name is uh, Tom van der me
1: llamo Vicente Alfonso
2: my name is Marie Chellgren.
0: Melvi von
3: Yeah, I'm not the sort of people to be uh, in an office the whole day.
2: We are not many young people fishing.
1: El barco es de, de mi madre, es una empresa familiar. My father is also a fisherman. Y mi madre, de aquí unos pocos años cuando se jubile, el barco pasará a ser mío.
3: My father uh, says it's a team uh, job.
1: It's a physically hard
3: work. You don't know for how many years can you do it.
0: The voice is there of a new generation of European fishers. New recruits born into fishing families and embarking on a career in a sector that is facing many difficulties. These include an aging workforce, lack of investment, safety concerns, and sustainability challenges. So what is the future of our fishing communities here in Europe? How can they attract young people into the job? To discuss this issue, I'm joined by Anna Carlson, Fishery Officer for Socio-Economic Issues at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN and General Fisheries Commission for the Mediterranean. Hello, Anna.
2: Hi, Jeremy. Nice to be here today.
0: And Esben Sverdrup Jensen, CEO at the Danish Pelagic Producers Organization and President of the European Association of Fish Producers Organizations. Hello, Esben. Hello. Hi, Jeremy. Glad to be here. And at the end of the episode, Captain Peter Hammerstead the director of campaigns for Sea Shepherd, has a personal and moving story of saving a pilot whale.
1: Because of that experience, pilot whales have a special place in my heart.
0: I want to start with a, a question. I, I mean, I know the answer for me. I've never been on a fishing boat. I've never been out to sea fishing. Um, Anna, have you ever tried fishing on a fishing vessel um and have you had that experience
2: <laughs> that's a nice question um so on a on a industrial or a commercial fishing vessel no i haven't had that experience um of course my my grandfather was a recreational fisher and i'd occasionally go out with him but and um, that's a, a slightly different world let's say
0: yeah ra- rather smaller scale Esben?
3: <laughs> yes yes i have uh, but uh not enough, according to my uh, members, of course, but uh, yes, I've, uh, I've been there.
0: Is that how you started out in this? Well,
3: I grew up in a fishing port, so um, I had my first uh, job in the fishing industry and, and basically I had all the opportunities to, uh, to become a fisherman if I wanted to, but I guess that's part of the conversation today is, uh, is why a guy like me uh, didn't use uh,
0: to, uh, to become a fisherman. Um, What is the reality of the European fishing fleet, actually? How many people are there taking part in this industry? What kind of boats are they operating?
3: Well, uh, it's quite a colorful mix of different uh, boats. So you'll still see some vessels, quite a few actually, that are very much like the one uh, that Anna's uh, grandfather uh, used uh, for his uh, recreational uh, fishery. So, especially in the Mediterranean, there are a lot of a lot of smaller vessels, and then when you move up along the coast uh, more north, you'll see bigger, more sort of industrial. Why is that?
0: Why is there that difference? Uh,
3: there well, there's a lot of uh, history. There's a lot of uh, culture to uh, to the fishing industry. There's also you, you need different vessels, types of vessels, different types of fishing gear for different fisheries. So it, fisheries is highly specialized these days. So you don't just go out to catch fish, you go out to catch a specific type of fish either uh, the living at the bottom or in the in the open uh, sea or uh, crustaceans and so on. It's also a mirror of the type of management system that is in place. So how are the fishing opportunities allocated between different people, different communities, different areas and so on. That's an important part of what type of vessels you have as well.
2: There's, I think, a big difference as well between the Northern European fleet and and the Mediterranean fleet. The the fleet in this region is quite different. It tends to be much more multi-species fisheries. So um, in the Mediterranean and Black Sea region, 82% of that fleet is small scale, uh, which is generally vessels under 12 meters using, um, sorry, passive gear. You have also this gray area of maybe 15 meter vessels, uh, 16 meter vessels, 14 meter vessels that are, Officially, from a data uh, perspective, are are not small scale vessels, but are this medium range of vessels. And and so you have quite a lot of that, particularly in the Mediterranean region. Um, So that fleet looks quite different. Um, You have quite a lot of very small vessels as well, where you have one maximum of two people on board and, and just a little bit of room to haul in the catch. And you have other vessels with with huge, uh, you know, industrial level uh, gear.
0: But just talk me through some of the numbers in terms of how many people are actually working in this sector now. Is it? Um, and we also hear that this is generally a sector that's in decline in terms of the the number of people are working in it. But w- what are the figures that we have now for for
1: Europe?
2: For the Mediterranean and the Black Sea region, uh, our official statistics say that just under two hundred thousand people work onboard vessels officially it's 194,000 jobs
0: who are actually going out to sea this is people who are actually going out yeah
2: working on the vessel going out to sea and working in the actual capture fisheries you know harvesting uh, the fish the numbers are dropping, though, that we know, and the fishers are getting older. So our most recent report just came out in December 2022. And there we know from the most recent data, um, which was based on reference year of 2020, 10% of fishers were under the age of 25. Um, and this is down from 17% in 2018. So that's a rather rapid drop.
0: been is it the same in northern Europe? Yeah, well,
2: I
3: think that the estimate is that around 350,000 people in Europe are working on board vessels or closely linked to uh, to the vessels. So quite a lot of jobs, but again, as Anna said, rapidly decreasing also in why, northern why is, Europe.
0: Why is, it, why is it decreasing then? What's the problem?
3: Well, it's not necessarily a, a, a problem, but okay. the vessels have become more efficient, That goes for the on-land operations as well. You see a lot fewer people working in fish factories, in transport, and so on. So a lot of solutions, a lot of robotics, a lot of automatization in the processing. Mm. And the same goes on the vessels. Some of my member vessels are about 90 meters long. They can take 3,500 tons of fish. And you have between six and eight people working on the boat
0: What's the job really like? Can you kind of talk me through what the reality is of a a fisher now in Europe, has been? Yeah, again, I mean, we're coming back to
3: this code of many, many colors. There's a big difference between operating a one-man open boat in the Mediterranean and then operating a modern large pelagic
0: vessel. Let's take the example of the guys on the large pelagic vessel. What what, what do they do?
3: Well, first of all, they, they... They steam quite a lot, so you need quite a lot of patience. And then when the fishing is on, these guys are on for the number of hours that it takes. It depends a little bit on the different types of species. Sometimes you're only holding the trawl for five minutes, but of course the whole operation is is bigger, but the actual fishing is only five or ten minutes. And then you're pumping the fish and so on. But uh, So the actual fishing part is not necessarily that uh, demanding, but uh, you need to be able to uh, mend the gear, you need to be able to understand the mechanisms to set the trawl, to pull it in, to operate all of these different uh, things while the fishing is on.
0: And these are boats that are going far out into yeah, the island? Yeah, so then it's, uh, the
3: then it's basically, of course, you're working all the time, uh, cleaning and fixing and mending and preparing for your next trip. So there's quite a lot of work, but actually, fishing part of it is not necessarily the main part of it. And how long would they go out for? So up to, let's say, 10 days is the sort of maximum level these days. Some of the fishing operations are different. It's not necessarily five. It's down to five minutes, but it's up to, let's say, five, six hours of towing. It depends on on what type of fishing, uh, what type of species you're
2: catching. Um some of the northern European fleet can be much more technological, and uh, Stefan has said the job has evolved a bit. Whereas in the Mediterranean, but it's a bit more physical, um, especially on the small small scale vessels. Typically, you know, a fishing trip is less than twenty four hours, but it's early early mornings, or you know, you're up uh, at three in the morning to get going to get out to sea. Mm. It's physical. It's uh, you're out in, exposed to the elements. So you hear from fishers that you know in the winter it's cold it's wet in the summer it's hot and then once you return to port the day doesn't end there as well because often small scale fishers are then very much involved in uh, preparing the catch taking it to market uh, or even marketing the catch themselves and this is something we've heard from fishers about potentially a deterrent uh, to young people joining the sector as they're not uh, you know, they'd much rather an office job, but we also hear from fishers that say that's what they also love about their job is that they're they're free, they're they're their own boss. Let's say they're out in in nature, they're out in the sea, they're really connected to the sea, and they love that aspect of it as well. So there's you know pros and cons.
0: Going back to the bigger boats, what's life like on board? If I was um, if I was working in that sector, would I have my own cabin, or is it kind of very cramped space where everybody's sharing everything together? What's it like?
3: It's uh, it's pretty comfortable. You would have your own cabin. You would have your own showers. You would have your own Wi-Fi on board. So what that part of sector has been trying to do is to address some of those issues that Anna just mentioned in terms of of creating a work environment that very much matches what you have on land. You have fitness on board, many of these vessels.
0: That doesn't sound too bad. No, no, (laughs) it sounds all right, doesn't it? But it it
3: is pretty good. It is pretty good. You still have the factor that you never know when you're going to be back. You don't know. For those vessels, the market for fish is, uh, is quite dynamic. So you might end up selling your fish or landing your fish in northern Norway or in the Faroe Islands or in Scotland or in Denmark. So if you have to be back for a birthday or a communion or whatever or a date, mm. that's when the, that's where the difficulty starts.
2: Mm. I think one of the the key issues is reducing the vulnerability of fishers in the sector. I mean, we talk about fishers and and sometimes, especially in less developed countries, you have an an image of fishers as being poor and you know, struggling. And that's not necessarily the case from the data. Some of the fishers in the Mediterranean Actually, they earned quite a good, I mean, they have a good uh, income, but it's a highly vulnerable sector. So you have issues with weather and you have damage to your vessel or damage to your gear, or you get sick, or you know you pull your back out while you're working, or you need a loan to buy a new engine. And those those types of shocks uh, can be really devastating in the sector because it's so highly vulnerable. And so, trying to to reduce those vulnerabilities of the sector, I think, is one also one way of of um, of providing a bit more stability to the sector and encouraging young people.
0: Did you know that the fishery sector in the Mediterranean and the Black Sea captures more than 1 million tons every year? But catches decreased by 16% from 2019 to 2020, likely because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Is recruitment actually a concern for fishers in Europe? We do face a recruitment
3: uh, challenge, especially if we look a little bit ahead of us. Quite clearly, we're losing young people, and the average age of uh, fishermen in Europe is increasing. In parts of the sector, as we just talked about, where safety has improved and the physical demands are less, then you, you can actually work on deck longer than you used to. So you don't sort of wear out in the same way that you did maybe 10 or 20 years ago. But in general, there is a challenge. We see it in our fishing school that uh, we have very few people applying. And you need a lot of skills to be a fisherman. It's not enough to have two good hands uh, (laughs) anymore. You need to be able to work with IT. You need to fill out all of the documentation. You need to understand how to run a business. And hopefully also you have some extra types of skills so you need to be very good at mending nets or uh, fixing uh, things or electronics and so on so you basically need like a modern uh, macgyver type to (laughs) to be on the board it's
0: interesting yeah because i kind of thought that this was a sector where if things had not gone well for you at school and you were 16 17 18 years old the way you could maybe get yourself a job and start earning reasonable money quite quickly but you're saying you want people with pretty Hard skills, actually.
3: So it's not sort of a last resort that it used to be. You can't pick somebody up in a bar at three o'clock in the morning and then take him out fishing uh, next day. It's not safe. It's not the type of job uh, anymore.
0: Is it still a family business?
3: Very much so. Even some of the largest uh, companies in uh, in Europe are still sort of have their base in a family operation. All of my members are family run operations. That is also a difficult thing because next generations don't really always want to have the feeling for working in, in fisheries.
2: Even if the Mediterranean fleet is perhaps a little less technological, and so you might think of this idea as fisheries as a last resort kind of profession, but uh, it's quite difficult for someone to just say, Well, I didn't do well in school. I'm going to go get a boat and, and go fish. And um, typically, they're people that take up working in the sector. It's because their parents were, you know, fishers and they went out on the boat with their father and they know the sector intimately. And it's, there's quite a barrier to entry, I would say, to someone who doesn't know the sector, doesn't know the waters.
0: You're painting a picture of quite a closed business then, actually.
2: Well, we're seeing also in, in some countries where, you know, even if someone did want to to join the profession or they they found someone that maybe they could train under or work with, if you don't have the possibility to, say, inherit your father's boat, often there's barriers in terms of allowing young people to get a loan to buy their own boat or to purchase their own gear. So to enter the sector becomes quite difficult that way as well.
0: So what what are the things you can do to get people into it?
2: Well, I, I think um, we have a an initiative called the SSF Forum, which is a stakeholder exchange for Mediterranean and Black Sea small-scale fishers. And we were talking to fishermen about precisely this issue, and they presented an interesting perspective. I mean, they said you, see, you hear a lot of people talking about going back to the land or young people that are wanting to, you know, go into sort of this more idyllic, you know, buy a country farmhouse and, and become a farmer. They said, you know, fisheries offers that, that same kind of thing in the sense that they they really valued being able to wake up in the morning and go out to see and feel the air in their, you know, hair and and be close to the environment in that way and not having a boss, you know, and not sitting in an office. It's a really specific personality that that is drawn to that type of work.
3: Now we see a growing interest from let's say that <laughs> that type of people who have an interest in the environment, in nature talking to sort of the hunter instinct in in the human being off the grid type of ideas and talking about hunting, there are very few jobs actually where you can get that feeling. And when you talk to fishermen anywhere in the world, when they're out fishing, they're hunting. And you get those the same vibes that you, if you talk to a hunter, that, that excitement and that sort of tunnel vision that you get when you're, you're out there. So if you can sort of, Speak to those emotions. There are a group of people out there who are who are interested in in fisheries. But again, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of baggage with the with the fishing industry. A lot of uh, sort of ideas of how things are run.
0: There certainly is. I mean, when you look up you look up the fishing industry online, and you read about overfishing. You read about people being treated practically as slaves when they're at sea, not in Europe but in other parts of the world they start doing a couple of searches online and they hear this is a declining business there's overfishing all the time there's illegal fishing they're just getting hammered by NGOs all the time because they say they're destroying the environment i mean how do you overcome those those kinds of uh, image issues
3: well i think from my uh, perspective i mean we start with ourselves we we're very much creating that narrative of negativity of always complaining about everything mm. talking our own sector down I mean some of those have been scared away from their own sort of from the business by their own relatives and by their fathers and families have said don't ever become a fisherman
2: and again going back to this meeting we had recently with the with fishers in Italy they they expressed the same thing I mean they they really said there's a need to kind of take control of the narrative and and show that if you have food on your plate uh, at this restaurant tonight it's because we caught it this morning and we have an essential role to play in that in feeding people good high quality protein uh, healthy diets especially in the mediterranean it's a it's a huge part of the mediterranean diet
0: i want to talk a bit about gender issues um in the past in our tv show ocean we've reported on this with some really nice stories from um, spain showing some initiatives to try and um i suppose place more value on the work done by women not not just in terms of the money that they earn but also their visibility w- what are the gender issues that we have at the moment in in the fishing issues the representation of women their ability to get into it and and if and if we were, could improve that would that actually improve the situation in terms of this recruitment do you think
2: if i can women in fisheries are often quite invisible in official statistics Our official data collected from our countries shows that less than 1% of uh, fishers are women. But that's more of an issue with the data and how it's collected than than the actual situation itself. So we don't actually know know, what Mm. the breakdown is. But we also know that women are often uh, very much uh, working in the the pre-harvest or post-harvest sector where we may not have official data collection. Um, And often they're working in... Let's say inform, uh, informal or unrecognized roles as collaborating spouses. Um, these may be unpaid roles, and so things
0: like mending nets and mending, mending some of the nets, machinery. Also
2: selling the catch, preparing right. the catch, uh, etc. Um, or even just some of the household management. You know, keeping the books for the family mm. fishing company, or some yeah, that's issues. not seen.
0: It's not recognized. Yeah,
2: exactly. And so not having the data on that. It sort of diminishes the from a policy perspective the understanding of the role of women in fisheries you say okay on paper it looks like one percent of fisheries are women so this really isn't an issue we need to pay attention to when in reality uh, women have a, a really important role especially in many of these family-run businesses and so bringing that giving visibility to that role i think is a, a key part which will then help to uh, also ensure that women can have a, a stronger position in terms of uh, being involved in decision mm. making, making uh, visible the issues that are important to them.
3: I fully agree with uh, with Anna here that that you know the official statistics show very few women in in fisheries, but there are a lot of women in the sector. But if we're talking about on deck, very very few women are there fisheries is is generally a quite a physical job the conditions on the vessels don't necessarily allow for the type of sort of privacy and and so on that you you basically need if you have more than one gender on board and so on
0: yes Are, are there young women who want into who want to get into this business
3: yes there are they are I would say those who are at the forefront of pushing the sector towards a more transparent way of operation, more uh, sustainability, uh, more sort of, let's say, responsible ways of dealing with crew, with with gear, with uh, recycling, all of these things. Are,
0: th- are there any particular initiatives at the EU level at the moment to try and encourage young people in, young women and young men into this sector that you think are actually working or effective? Well,
3: there is quite a lot of funding available for for these types of initiatives. And then there is a new initiative that I don't know a lot about yet, but it's called, I think, Future Fisheries or Future Fisheries that is focusing on recruitment. So hopefully something is coming up at the European level.
1: Did you know that in
0: some countries like Slovenia, the fishermen are using trained cormorant birds to catch fish in lakes and rivers? This method dates back to the 16th century. The birds are fitted with a ring around their necks to prevent them from swallowing the fish, which is then retrieved by humans. Looking ahead, what are the big technological changes that we can expect in in fishing? Because... You know, in, in our business, for example, in the media business, everybody talks about artificial intelligence coming in and, you know, taking our jobs, changing our lives. And that happens, that's happening in lots and lots of sectors. Well,
3: we're already introducing quite a lot of those technologies.
0: That, that's what I was,
3: uh, I didn't mention before, but in terms of recruitment, I mean, there's also another path. I mean, come on board one of the one modern uh, fishing vessel, and it's like, uh, it's like flying a fighter jet. It's uh, it's really I mean, it's toys uh, for boys and hopefully also for, for women. T- tell me about some of those um, toys then. Well, I mean, uh, you have uh, artificial intelligence uh, that we use in terms of detecting bycatches. We can even use it to prevent accidents on deck. The latest in um, electrical gear, big engines, cooling systems, uh, I mean, there's a multitude of, of things. And that on top of this, you have all the, the fish detecting systems, sonar, eco sounders uh, that work with satellite uh, systems and so on. So there's, there's really a lot of uh, stuff uh, going on out there. Very high tech.
2: I'd, I'd say on, on a smaller scale, technological innovation is is perhaps more on the marketing side. Um, so you're, you've seen a lot of really interesting initiatives, even at a cooperative level in the Mediterranean in terms of marketing catches, in terms of using apps to already uh, you know upload information about the catch while the fish are still at sea, so that by the time they return to port, they may even already have their catch completely sold or there's a cooperative in Spain that's done a lot of really interesting work with tagging their catch in order to prevent fish fraud in order to to market their their catch that way
0: do you think though that we can kind of make fishing a uh, uh, one of those jobs that people are really proud to say they are going into right because i'm sure the people who do it are proud but the people who are going into it say i've got this cool opportunity i'm going to go out fishing i'm going to do that well i
3: think it's pretty it's a pretty cool uh, job and, and once in a while i regret not uh, becoming a, a real fisherman instead of sort of a desk uh, warrior As we're coming back to the narrative, I mean, we need to sort of get rid of the black spots in the past and then sort of move into a situation where we become more custodians of the ocean. What will place fisheries in a very unique spot in the market for food? I mean, it's already delicious and healthy and fun to eat and enjoy seafood. But if you can do it with a minimal carbon footprint, that is really a a golden opportunity that no other food production offers. So once we're there, I think we can also attract a whole different group of people into the sector. Keeping in mind that it's still, no matter what we do, it's gonna be hard work. You're gonna be away from home. We can't take that out of fisheries. But no, we,
0: and you can't change the
3: weather. No, and we can't change be... <laughs> the weather and so on, but it's always been a profitable line of business in the long run. And when you start early, you're gonna make a lot more money than all of your friends
0: that's for sure I'm sure that that is a good motivation Anna what are your thoughts
2: I mean I think the situation might be a little bit different in the Mediterranean level that said I mean the fishers we talk to say that it, it's absolutely possible to earn a good a solid living and I think it's really essential to to work on changing the narrative and I've Never talk to a fisher that wants to catch vulnerable species in their nets or that, you know, wants to deplete fish stocks so that there's no future and no fish to catch in the future. And so they really are on the front lines. They are the ones that understand. They've seen the the changes in species in the region. They've seen the changes from climate change. They know the sea that they work in. And so changing the narrative and, and ensuring that the next generation of fishers really are this this guardians of the sea it's important that fishers take ownership of that and that their you know the society recognizes their role in collaborating in that and that should be the future of the sector
3: well i think in a lot of places in the mediterranean as anna mentioned earlier on people love that narrative that uh, you know, it's, uh, it's small-scale, it's romantic, it's, it's old-fashioned, it's a little bit sort of rough, and you never know. And, and very often you see at a national level, but also at an EU level, that the legislation sort of fixes the sector in that position. So it's very difficult to, let's say, invest in modern technology and in modern boats that maybe meet the demands of those who will be fishing in the future because the legislation is there to protect those who are already there. So, so you're sort of forced to, to continue fishing on a small vessel that's not necessarily profitable and not necessarily safe and, and so on. So we need to work on that part of the narrative as well, fixing legislation and allowing the sector to develop and to become more modern and more responsible.
0: Thank you very much for joining us, Anna Coulson and Esben Sverdrup. Thanks for being with us on Ocean Calls.
3: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
2: My pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: Now to our segment where a well-known person tells their favourite ocean tale. In this episode, we welcome Sea Shepherd's Captain Peter Hammerstedt, who's working to stop illegal fishing and protect endangered marine species around the world, while inspiring people to take action for environmental justice and sustainability. And this is Captain Peter's story.
1: My name is Peter Hammerstedt. I'm the director of campaigns for Sea Shepherd Global an international marine conservation organization that works to protect marine wildlife. My favorite ocean experience actually comes off the back of a very successful campaign that we had down in the Southern Ocean, shutting down illegal whaling in the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. And we come off the back of this campaign having successfully intervened in illegal whaling activity, and having saved over 700 whales because of our direct interventions. As we came back into port on a remote island just in the Bass Strait, an area of water between Tasmania and mainland Australia, it was a stranding of pilot whales. And because of that experience, pilot whales have a special place in my heart. There were 54 pilot whales that were still alive once on the beach. These were pilot whales that had not landed on their blowhole, that had not drowned in the rough and tumble of washing up ashore. By the time we arrived in Narrakoopa, all 54 of the pilot whales had been reintroduced to sea, but because of a turn in the weather, one of the 54 pilot whales ended up restranding herself. And so all of the rescue efforts had to focus on keeping this pilot whale alive, for as long as we could until there was another window, another opportunity to bring her back out to ocean. This pilot whale was bloodied and bruised from being tumbled in the rough surf of the water that washed her up on shore. My job on the beach was to time her breathing, and I remember standing next to her beleaguered body with a stopwatch and measuring her breathing. As the days went by, I could that her breathing was starting to slow down. The smell of the breath coming out of the blowhole, it began to smell like curdled milk. And that's generally a sign of severe dehydration. We set up tarpaulin shields to be able to protect her from the wind. We wrapped her in wet blankets to protect her from the scorching sun and uh, did everything we could to just keep her skin wet so that it wouldn't chap and crack. After about two and a half days on this beach, her breathing slowed down from breathing once every 30 seconds to once every two and a half to to three minutes. And finally, there was a break in the weather, this two-hour window where there was the potential of trying to get her out to sea. We carried her down to the waterfront in a, in a hammock and once we got down to the water we had two jet skis with a tow line in between them and that tow line was put under her pectoral fins and she was then towed off the beach. When the jet skis got about 150 to, to 200 meters off the beach she started pulling away and trying to break free of this tow and she finally got loose and then started swimming in a completely different direction from from where she was being towed and I remember standing on the beach thinking my god she's going to end up re-stranding herself she's not swimming in the direction we were trying to take her which was as far off the beach as we possibly could but uh, there were air assets in the air that day and there was a helicopter up in the air and what they noticed is that The 53 pilot whales that had been rescued three days earlier, they were all still waiting for her offshore, and she was swimming straight for her pod. And as she met them, the other 53 pilot whales, they circled her and they nudged her with their bulbous heads. And then once reunited, all 54 pilot whales swam out to open ocean together. And it's such a memorable experience for me because it came with the realization that the rest of her pod knew that one of their members was still stuck on the beach, and they must have known that a rescue effort was underway. It's just amazing the intelligence and the the social skills of these creatures to, to wait for a remaining member of their family and to not leave the site of the rescue until every single one of those members was off that beach and i remember seeing them all swim off together
0: my thanks to captain peter hammerstad for that heartwarming story Ocean Calls is produced by Euronews for ocean fans around the world, and I'm your host, science reporter Jeremy Wilkes, and this series is produced by my colleagues, Naira Davlachian and Natalia Olsner. The theme music is by Gabrielle Delmaso. Editing and sound design is by Jean-Christophe Marco, and mixing is by Mathieu Duchesne. Our production coordinator is Caroline Lab, and our editor-in-chief is Sophie Claudet. The Ocean Calls podcast is made possible by the European Commission's Directorate General for Maritime Affairs and Fisheries. You can find out more about our guests by following the links in the description. You can listen to Ocean Calls on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. You can find out more on Euronews.com and please have a look at our sister TV show called Ocean on Euronews.com slash ocean. It's wonderful viewing. Follow World News from a European perspective on Euronews.com